Often, we view revolutionary figures from the point of view of what they achieved or what they tried to achieve. We read their quotes, pursue their battles and reminisce over their speeches. Often we forget that they did not just exist in the public world. To raise those who required revolution was not their only role in life. We often fail to recognise that aside from how we knew them, there was another side to them. A side where they were not known as the creators of a new world, but rather as a father or mother or a brother or sister, a friend or a colleague. Known as ordinary people who just happened to do extraordinary things. If you knew what they were like behind closed doors, would your view of them differ? Would your view be more sympathetic to their battles outside the home? Would you view them as people rather than statues commemorating history? It's the life of a man from Cowgate, Edinburgh, which answers these questions for us. This is his story, as told by his daughter Nora. In Cowgate, Edinburgh, in 1868, a child was born. His name was James Connolly. He was the third son of Irish parents, John Connolly and Mary McGinn. His family had left Monaghan in order to create better opportunities for their family, but found themselves in the ghetto slums of the city, as did thousands of other Irish people who left to fulfil the same dreams. The area itself became known as Little Ireland due to the Irish influence there. James worked as hard as he could to get through his education. However, at the age of 10, he was forced to leave education to work as a labourer, as his father and grandfather had done before him. Rather than have me tell this story, however, I would like to invite you to suspend reality for a moment. We had intended on sharing with you the voice of Nora Connolly to tell her father's story. Unfortunately, due to the copyright cost of sharing the original audio, we were unable to bring you her voice. Instead, we have invited Anne Long to voice the words Nora gave in a 1965 interview about her father's life. Only now and again would he talk about his past, when something would crop up and he'd tell us about it. Like he'd tell us about they being so poor that they couldn't have pencils or pens to write with, and how he used to burn a bit of stick at the turf fire and write with that. Because they were so poor, they couldn't have any lamps. It was too dear to have a lamp. No money for a lamp. And he would get down by the fire and do his exercises by it. During his youth, James acquired a very thick Scottish accent which allowed his voice to always boom above others. This accent hid his Irish heritage from a young age. This meant, while he learned of his nation's history through his father's stories and the wrong that was done to his people by the British Empire, his Republican views were rarely identified by others. Another inner turmoil James used to carry 
was the memories of what his grandparents had lived through during the famine. He carried the images of what they saw, what they had had to do to survive, and who would cause it to them. At age 14, due to a lack of opportunities, James falsified his age and joined the British Army, as it was one of the few roles an Irishman could get. His brother John had joined a few years before, also falsifying his age, and the two brothers put the name Reed on their registration forms. As his first role, he was sent to Ireland as part of the Royal Scots Regiment. Here, he spent seven years involved in the land wars of Ireland. These wars came about as the British Crown tried to strip Irish farmers of their land, or forced them to pay high rents and taxes on land which had been in their families' names for centuries. Farmers and their families were taken from their homes by the British Army, and their thatched roofs were set on fire, their livestock killed and their crops stolen, to ensure that they had no reason to stay on the land that the Crown wanted. James, seeing this, remembered all his father and grandparents had told him, and it caused a tremendous pain in his heart. He grew a powerful hate for the British Army. He hated what they were doing and what they were forcing him to do to his own people. When he discovered that his regiment was being transferred to India, he decided to flee and desert the army. He couldn't be involved in another displacement of a native people from their land. When he returned to Edinburgh and using his real name again, he met a woman called Lily Reynolds. While the two lived in Edinburgh, James became very involved in the Scottish Socialist Federation, hoping to make the lives of others better, as he was unable to do so for those in Ireland. Unfortunately, this role did not pay, and he had to get work to support his young family. He established a cobbler's shop in 1895, but after a few months it failed, mainly due to his prominence in the socialist movement. He became a tremendously strong voice for those who needed it most, but as much as James' voice bellowed across political and economic worlds, his voice was humbled in his home due to a powerful woman by his side. I think Mother was the boss. Any time we suggested something to Daddy, he would say, Well now, what does Mama say? Or we'd ask him, could we do so and so? And he'd say, ask Mama. There was no such thing as, I'm the boss. I can override Mama. If Mama agreed, or if he thought that Mama was forbidding us something, or there was a little bit of injustice in it, he would talk it over with her. And then they would both say, well, we've talked it over and we both think you can do so-and-so. In 1910, James and his family moved to Dublin. Through his work in Scotland, he came to the attention of James Larkin, who wanted Connolly to join him in the fight for the Irish workers' rights. His fame grew in Ireland as the great fighter for the Irish worker. His family life continued as normal. Above all else, he was a father and devoted husband. I remember him wanting us to sing, 
and wanting us to dance and getting us to recite. But I wouldn't say it was games as we understand games nowadays. In our living room, there was a big round table, which we used to have our meals on when we used to have visitors, not when the family was there. He used to sit on one side of it, writing, others around the other corners of it doing their homework. There'd be some playing some games sitting on the rug at the fire, and he'd work away through all this din and talk and everything else. And if you wanted to get his attention, you had to go over and touch him. I'd like to think I was his favourite, but I think it was between myself and the youngest sister, Fiona. He was very fond of her. She had the right to his knee. He couldn't sit at a table, but she'd be on his knee. I remember sometimes it got rather awkward, you know, when he wanted her down. So I remember one day he said, oh, you can't sit on Daddy's knee. Daddy's got a bone in his knee. And she looked at him and said, Oh, poor daddy, poor daddy, but you've got another knee. Whenever I was riding the high horse, as he used to call it, he used to call me Gwendolyn Violet. And he'd say, Now Gwendolyn Violet. And that brought me back to reality and put my feet back on the ground. He took a hand in our education at home. He was always advising us books to read. He was always bringing home books of some kind or other. Whenever he went away for any length of time, whenever he came back, he always brought presents and there were always books. It was different to the things he brought to Mama, but to us, always books. He wasn't just content to bring us the books and to say, read it or not, just as you like. But he would ask you about it, ask what you thought about it, ask you questions about it, see if you understood it. And if he thought you'd taken it up wrong, he'd explain that to you. Oh, he was very much a reader himself and he wanted to develop that in us. And he did develop it. We all have a big vice, and that's reading. He always wrote. He always wrote to Mama. He wrote to us, the different members of the family, if there was something he thought we would be interested in. But we always got postcards, picture postcards, to show us the places he had been. He never spoke to us about socialism as a theory or anything, but things that would happen he would explain to us so that we always got what he called the right point of view on it. And then he used to read books to us. There were always books on a definite revolutionary theme, always social justice. Whilst the home became an institute for the socialist movement in Ireland, James insisted, above all else, it was the home of his wife and children. We never knew who was coming to the house, or when they were coming. We used to not know whether they were going to stay. But Mother was accustomed to that. She never made a big fuss over anybody coming. If they came, they took potluck with the family meals. And if they didn't like it, 
Well, Mama couldn't help that. But everybody liked coming to the house, young and old. People got very fond of Mama, as well as having a great admiration and respect for my father. They got very fond of Mama. James was a man of principle. Honesty was a vital part of his life. This came about as a result of a series of lies he witnessed at a political level. Promises were made and more often than not broken. Hopes were raised only to be later dashed. Oh, I do remember him losing his temper. He had a very hot temper, but he had great control over it. Great control. He used to go white. The control he put on himself, you know. He would go quite white in the face. His jaw would jut out. One thing always roused his anger. He would never accept any excuses for. There wasn't such thing as an excuse for it. Was anything in the way of a lie or a misstatement? No, nothing could justify that. Nothing at all. And then we would sort of cower in front of the lecture he would give us. The rage. He was very strong on that. Connolly and Larkin became the leading figures in the 1913 lockout as both men and others organised for the workers of Ireland to down tools and rise as a people against those who were stealing their lives in return for a pittance. And as the pressure of the movement grew, James never buckled from his beliefs or efforts, even on a personal level. He was always dressed very tidy, very neat. Practically always the same thing he got. A navy blue suit, black shoes. I don't remember in my whole life brown. He'd have black. A collar, a turned down collar, not a pointed collar. And he always wore a striped tie. Mainly a blue one with a red stripe or a red one with a blue stripe. Something like that were the colours he would have. Oh, he was very fond of a cup of tea. We used to say if he had as much tea as he could drink in one room and went into the next and somebody said, would you like a tea, Mr. Connolly? He'd say he would and take it. Oh, yes, he was very fond of tea. You know, he didn't drink. He didn't take any intoxicating liquors at all. I remember, too, he wasn't one of those rabid teetotalers. You know, it was just... It didn't do it for him. He would go in with his friends to a pub, you know, and they would order what they liked and he would have his lemonade or something like that. Other teetotalers wouldn't do that at the time, but he was a bit more broad-minded. It took a bit of courage. While James was raised as a Catholic, it wasn't a major factor in his life. As he would later fight to free Ireland, it wasn't for sectarian reasons in order to liberate Catholics. It was in order to liberate all the children of Ireland. Regardless of sex, age, politics or any other label placed on the people in order to divide, he believed in republic for all, all being equal in it. I wouldn't say he was religious or anti-religious, but I think it was just part of the general makeup. It wasn't outstanding. It didn't develop out of everything he said and did as a socialist or nationalist philosophy did. 
The only memory I really have of him in that line was once he came to Mass with me. The priest began to attack without mentioning his name. It's so long ago I forget what he was concerned with, but everyone around knew it was Connolly he was on about. You could see the heads turn around from each side, you know. And I put out my hand and said, Come on, get up. Come on, we'll not sit and listen to this. And he just put his hand out and shoved me down and he said, You sit down. You sit down, let him have his say. We want our say too. He wouldn't let me march out in protest. I was to stay there. Let him have his say. James became a very popular figure in Irish life, leading many trade union movements and gaining rights wherever he could. James, although anti-war, guns and fighting, began to see that all his movements were ultimately falling on deaf ears, and in order to gain the rights for the people which they deserved, Ireland would need to be set free. With home rule after home rule bill failing, James began to become friendly with Thomas Clark, Podrick Pierce, and the others involved in the Gaelic League. Each of these brought their own story as to why Ireland must be free. They each had an experience that brought them to realise that the Irish would always be serfs in the eyes of the British establishment, and for Ireland to have any real future, an armed rebellion was required. Then, Easter 1916 came along and the revolution had been planned to start. Nora, being a young girl, did not take part in the revolution, although her brother did. She did have one very important role in it, however. I had the rare privilege of making them all breakfast before they went to the GPO. I'll never forget it. They all came down to Liberty Hall. They didn't come all at once, you know. They came now and again. I think Sean McDermott came by himself, and so did Tom Clark. And you wouldn't know, but suddenly one of them would erupt into the room. They all came by different ways, of course. They were all out in different places. But they got the common, ordinary Irish breakfast of bacon and eggs, rashers and eggs and tea. But I can see them now sitting in that little room in Liberty Hall, one or two at the table. There was never more than two at the table, as it was too small a table. McDonough used to joke me a lot. He was a very gay soul. I always felt he lifted the atmosphere in any place up to a gay level. I don't know what it was about him, because he wasn't a big person. He was rather slight, not tall. I remember when we were going away, they were sending us back to the north. Pierce and the others sent us in dispatches. They wanted to get us out so we would be back in the north by 12 o'clock. 12 o'clock was the time they were going to start in Dublin. So we were fussing and getting excited and I remember him saying, Fine lot you are, big strapping girls like you and all you're anxious to do is to get out of the city and we on the brink of a revolution. I can remember that so well. Nora and her family made it up to the north for the start of the Rising. 
James spent the week fighting bravely with the other Irish men and women across the city, he himself based in the GPO. As the fighting progressed and the rebels started to lose, James was shooting outside the GPO doors when a stray bullet ricocheted off the Dublin pavement and sliced through his ankle, severing veins and arteries. He collapsed to the floor and was dragged inside by the other rebels. He was placed on a stretcher and whisked out to 16 Moore Street when the rebels evacuated the building behind Michael O'Rahilly. As Elizabeth O'Farrell and Podrick Pierce delivered the surrender of the rebels to the British Army, James lay bleeding out in a room on Moore Street. From here, the British Army took him to a cell in Dublin Castle. The others were taken to Kilmainham Jail to be executed one by one. The first time I saw him was in the afternoon. He was just in a little room at the top of a staircase. There were soldiers all the way up the stairs and there seemed to be using the landing too as sleeping quarters because there were mattresses there. There were two soldiers on guard at the door. Mama was with me. And when we went into the room, there was an officer in uniform, but he was a medical officer. Before we went in, we were told we weren't to give him any news at all. We weren't to discuss what had happened. Just personal matters we were to discuss with him. We said all right. I think some bits of news had slipped through to him, the way things do, and he knew some of the events. But he was concerned with leaving us of what would happen to a family of mainly girls and a mother. And he was thinking from the old days, you see all the misery, and there would be no life for us at all. So he advised us to go to the States, and he wanted me to get in touch with Sheehy Skeffington and to get him to arrange it. Of course, that was the last straw. I had tried to keep to the rules until then, but I said, Skeffington is gone. And he said, what? And I said, yes, in Portobello Barracks. And just left it at that, because I didn't want to be sent out of the room for fear something else might get to him. So we were discussing things, and I told him then that there was great talk among everybody, that because you are wounded, that you won't be executed. And he said, no, no, there's no hope of that. I remember what happened to Schieffer in South Africa. He was wounded and they executed him. That will have no effect on what they decide to do. He was very calm and very cool. I asked him, was he suffering much pain? And he said, no, he wasn't suffering much pain, that it had eased a good bit. But he felt very helpless lying there. That was the time he told me about the young boy. He said he couldn't be more than 14 and he was carrying right by his head the stretcher when they were carrying him out of the GPO. And he told me of how the little boy, any time a bullet seemed to come near, he would move his body so that he would get it instead of my father. 
He talked about what happened, but there was no talk of what might have happened. But he was saying, they were marvellous, he said. He was so happy that it had happened and that he had taken part in it, you know. And it was then he started telling me about the boy, and then he said, You know, Nora, while we have that type of youngster in Ireland, he said, Ireland won't last long unfree. We'll get freedom sometime. If it's not in our generation, then it will be in the next generation. It will come. He was very proud of his boys. As a matter of fact, he put it in his statement to the court-martial. How he thanked God that it allowed him to live to see the day when thousands of Irish men and boys and hundreds of Irish women and girls would rise. The next time I saw him, we were awoken at about one o'clock at night and the message given was that the prisoner, James Connolly, wanted to see his wife and eldest daughter. It jumped to my mind immediately that all had been executed up until then, except himself and Sean McDiarmid. And it jumped to my mind he too was going to be executed. But Mama had the idea that he wasn't aware of that and that he had taken a turn for the worse. Anyway, we got ready and we went down and we were taken in an army lorry right through Dublin. It was an awfully queer, eerie trip. Coming down to O'Connell Street and you still smelt the horrible smell of burning. And not a soul on the street, as there was a curfew, you know, at that time. And we went through the dimly lit streets and not a soul did we see. Not even a soldier until we came to the bridge and there were some there. And we went up to the castle. Every time we went there, we were searched to see we didn't bring anything in to help him end his life or something like that. But the last time we went up there, the nurse said, I'm supposed to search you, but you give me your word that you have nothing that he can do away with himself with and I won't search you. So Mama said, huh, you think what? We would help him to die? She opened the door and we went up. So when we got into my father, he said, Well, Lily, he said, I suppose you know what this means. Oh, no. Oh, no, not that. Yes, Lily, he said. She broke down then and she said, But your beautiful life, James, your beautiful life. And he said, Wasn't it a full life, Lillian? Isn't this a good end? She cried and he said, Look, Lily, please don't cry. You'll unman me. So she tried to control herself. I was trying to control myself too. Then he said to me, Put your hand down on the bed. So I did. And he said, That's a copy of my statement to the court-martial. Try to get it out. It was folded very tightly. So I took it. And we were there and talked about a few things. He was trying to plan our lives for after he was gone. Then they told us time was up and we had to go. He was to be shot at dawn. So Mama, you couldn't get her away from the bed. The nurse had to come and help me help her away. The following morning, James was placed into an ambulance and taken across to Kilmainham Jail. Being too ill to stand for his execution, 
He was tied to a chair in the yard where his comrades had been executed. He was blindfolded and shot by firing squad. We went to see Father Aloysius who was with him. I couldn't understand how they could execute him because he was there in bed helpless and they had this big cage up over his legs and how they could get him. Father Aloysius said before he died, I asked him would he say a prayer for the men who were about to shoot him and he said, I'll say a prayer for all brave men who do their duty. James's body was then taken across the city to Arbor Hill Prison and tossed into an unmarked quicklime grave with the other 14 leaders so that they could not be identified later or visited. We went back the following morning. We had to put a claim in for the body. Of course, they wouldn't hear of it. There was no hope for it. You know, it's a funny thing. One of that firing squad came to my mother afterwards and told her he was one of the firing squad and he felt he couldn't go on living unless she forgave him for being on it. It's a terrible thing, he said. I'm a Welshman and I'm in the labour movement all my life and that I should send a bullet into that man. Oh, he was very much upset. Mama said, don't worry, you only did your duty and he said he would say a prayer for all men who do their duty. James Connolly's death was one of the hardest things for the Irish Republicans to swallow. It had come after many of those fighting on their behalf had fallen, and being the man trying to free them from the slave-like conditions and work, it caused great grief around the island. The manner of his execution too became a rallying call for the rebels, who saw that although he was dying anyway, the Empire wanted their final say in the great man's life. Three years after his death, and due to the boulders he and the other leaders had begun to move, Ireland entered into its final war for independence. Led by the friends and colleagues of James Connolly, and inspired by his memory, after a two-year battle, 26 of Ireland's 32 counties became free. Today's music was written, produced and performed by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. We would like to say a special thank you to Anne Long for bringing the words of Nora Connolly back to life and for being part of this episode. The episode was researched and scripted by Oren. If you like this episode and want to support the podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish. We the Irish is an Ireland Loves production. Ryan is Anam Dunn, Gurav Mahakud, Slonanish.